This is the Baller on a Budget podcast. I'm Eileen, your host and your favorite Baller on a Budget. This isn't just a podcast about money management. We talk about all the juicy bits that surround money, the taboo, the heartbreak, the struggle, and the ridiculous moments we all face when it comes to saving some extra cash. Ready? Let's go. Baller fam, we're back. And I know that it's been a while since the last episode, but we are alive and kicking and we have an awesome guest today. So last month, my friend Diane Taha, aka at Style Contacts on Instagram, brought me on as a guest for her podcast, um, Channel Her in- Channel Your Influence, I'm sorry. And we had a grand old time talking about fashion-based waste, hyper-consumerism, and the corruption of capitalism. And it was a lot of fun. So I think we're going to kind of continue the conversation over here on this podcast So if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Channel Your Influence, I will include that in the show notes. Consider it a part one and a prelude to this episode. Channel Your Influence is created and hosted by today's guest, Diane Taha, who is a style influencer that I met quite a few years ago when I first started, and we're still friends to this day. So thanks, Diane, for coming on board today to have a little round two of our discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So excited to talk. Well, I guess, little icebreaker, how did you get into fashion and beauty influencing? What did you do for work prior to this? Or are you currently, you know, working on the side um, full time? Yeah, so I started my blog in 2013, many, many years ago. (laughs) And I started it as just like a platform for me to like, write beauty reviews, because at the time, I was trying a lot of different beauty products, experimenting a lot. So I wanted to just, you know, just start blogging. Blogging was like a new thing back then. And it really inspired me. So um, I started with that. And then, you know, I was also writing about New York Fashion Week and runway trends and just like trends in general. And then as Instagram became more prominent in fashion, I just sort of transitioned my blog over to Instagram. But aside from that, I do have a nine to five. I've had a nine to five for my entire blogging career. So my blog has never been like the biggest priority or my brand has ever been like, you know, the biggest priority um, because I do have a nine to five. Uh, I know a lot of other micro influencers have that too. And eventually they just quit their full-time jobs and do this full-time. But I just, I don't feel like, you know, I'm ready to do that at, at this time. I don't feel like I have the capacity or, you know, the financial resources to really do that just yet. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty difficult to like take the plunge full-time into this. I feel like you have to have, just an adequate amount of like financial cushion, financial support, financial stability to be able to do that. I think we need to hear more of influencers who are going on Instagram and just like being a little bit more transparent about them having a life outside of Instagram and also having a career and an occupation outside of Instagram, because I think it's really easy for us to just kind of log onto the app and just kind of see what you selectively post and make the assumption that, oh, this person, you know, like, oh, they're very privileged. They make good money. And like, this is just the way that they live. You often don't see what goes on in like behind the scenes. So with that being said, too, I noticed that your style is what's considered high low fashion, which is essentially a mix of elevated brands like Gucci and things like that. And then also mixed with things like fast fashion. So can you elaborate with us more on how that ties into your lifestyle as somebody who is a career person also as an influencer and why that's become your signature style? 
Yeah, I mean, so I've always been interested in, you know, elevated brands and luxury and all of that. But of course, I can't afford to have that be my entire wardrobe. So I do have to dip into like little fast fashion in order to take part in some of these trends. Like I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on something that's going to go out of style the next season. So um, that's where, you know, low fashion comes in. And, you know, I, I try to be conscious of how much money I'm spending with regards to you know, luxury, the high, low fashion part, um, because I don't want to buy too much fast fashion because that's also wasteful. Like a, a lot of times I'll just wear something a couple of times and then end up throwing it out or donating it. And um, with regards to the luxury, like it does go out of style too, <laughs> even if it's expensive, it's not necessarily it's a classic and a good example for that is the Chloe bag <laughs> from a few years ago. Yes, yes. That is that is the danger of buying something expensive now because you don't want it to be chuggy like in a couple of months. So um, what I show on Instagram is basically, you know, it, it's me, it's my authentic self. Like I'm, I'm not just, I'm not renting things. These are things that I buy. Um, this is just my lifestyle. Like it is, it's more so the low fashion than the high fashion, but there, there's like accents of high fashion, I guess. Like I try to buy... Yeah you know, I save up money to buy like nice bags, for example. But you know, for the most part, it is accessible, affordable fashion. There is a lot of trends right now. Like I know that Prada has recently come back with their nylon, the the nylon shoulder bags. Um, I know that Gucci has been around um, within like the most recent, like five years or so. And I feel like when we talk about like the spectrum of luxury goods, um, Gucci is something that really caters to the younger demographic and it's more affordable. And so it's very, you know, it's very hip and very trendy. Um, so it does give people the ability to kind of indulge in luxury stuff and mm-hmm. not break the bank on something, say like Chanel or Hermes, which is like, you know, ultra high luxury. So um, I think it is really cool that I'm seeing more and more influencers post things like um, high low fashion, uh, high low fashion mixes, um, because it just kind of it's it's still in tune with the trends, but it's not this distorted perspective um, where your your whole entire existence on Instagram is completely unattainable to like the majority of people, which is what I see a lot. I see mm-hmm. a lot of classes on Instagram where like people are literally just posting like ultra high fashion brand, just Hermes head to toe. And it's just not relatable to the vast majority of people. So thank you for keeping it relevant to <laughs> the majority of us who are actually on Instagram. Well, it's not like I can afford Hermes anyway. And <laughs> honestly, I just, I, there, there's the Hermes sandals, which are, I think they're like in the 600, 700 price range, mm-hmm. but they don't even look cute to me, for example. Like I, I just, I don't, I don't think that they're that cute. I don't think they're, they look that flattering on me. I actually bought the dupes from Goodnight Macaroon and I ended up selling them because they were uncomfortable and they just did not look flattering. Just because it's Hermes doesn't mean that you should buy it. Like if it's not cute, just, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to have it. Yeah. And I think that's like a good rule of thumb for like most designer stuff in general, because I feel like especially with with stuff like Hermes or Chanel, it's more so a a status symbol. It's a class symbol more than it is fashionable. Um, that's kind of how I feel like with what you said about like the Hermes slides, I think what they're called. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, like, I don't feel like that is flattering on people like me, like I have bigger calves. So when I wear stuff like that, it just feels like my feet become two little stubs, like they just disappear. <laughs> and yeah, yeah I don't like it on myself either. Yeah, so it's difficult. I feel like, yeah, like I see a lot of influencers who just like head to toe designer. And it's like, uh, I think there's this saying that money can't buy you fashion or money can't buy you taste and I think that is very um 
like we need to take more of that approach, especially when we see things like that on social media. So, I mean, with that being said, with you being um, a high, low fashion influencer, how much of your wardrobe actually is designer? Like what percentage? Oh, my actual wardrobe, like clothes? Well, clothes, shoes and apparel, like just lump it all in. (laughs) I would say um, for the most part, it's bags for me with better designer Mm -hmm. But clothes, I would say very little to none. I don't think I have any designer clothes for the most part. It's, I wouldn't say that it's all fast fashion, but it's not designer. Like I don't have anything that that would be considered like designer clothing, I don't think. And for shoes, I probably have like a couple pairs of designer shoes, but for the most part, it's just bags. I feel like when it comes to designer, the clothes are the least of of my priority. Like I'm more interested in getting the bags and then the shoes and then clothes. And that makes sense, honestly, because when we think about like textile wise, clothes, you know, they're thinner, the fabric is thinner. So even if it is a designer brand, even though it is like more better quality than a fast fashion blouse, um, there's also like taking into account like the durability, the wear and tear, um, and then also like, in terms of wearability mm-hmm. and longevity, is that also just a trendy, you know, blouse or is that something that's going to stand the test of time? I feel like it makes more sense that if you are going to, you know, um, invest in designer pieces, it makes more sense to go for bags and shoes because those things have more mileage on them. They have more wear and tear. I mean, I know how rough a lot of people can be with their bags, let alone, you know, their shoes that they're actually physically putting wear and tear on. So it makes more sense to kind of invest more wisely as to where your money's going when you're um, kind of like integrating more designer stuff into your wardrobe. Yeah, I used to have um, Chanel espadrilles and they got ruined at Disney. You wore them at Disney? No. I know. I simply <laughs> wore them at Disney and like it poured, like it was like raining so hard uh, at one point and they got soaked and like they just never looked the same again. And like nowadays I just wear them as like, beaters like go check the mail yeah basically they're 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 that kind of shoe now and they're like my only chanel shoes that i've ever had (laughs) oh that's tragic okay so well then that begs the question because i know that what you said earlier was that the the Mm -hmm. hermes sandals were like about six hundred dollars how much were the chanel espadrilles they were about 650 700 i think so yeah it was it was pretty expensive but not so expensive that it was unattainable if that makes sense like yeah like it was probably like you'd have to save up you know like a few months of budget for it but it's like you can still attain it versus yeah a twenty thousand dollar handbag or put it on a credit card but you know it's not like buying a chanel bag or it's yeah like eight thousand dollars i don't even know the price of like chanel handbags anymore but they just keep going up but with that being said what is your opinion on like the pricing and the attainability of luxury brands because i know that in itself obviously is a big you know um gatekeeper as to why just the normal working class person can't can't get stuff like that Mm -hmm. I mean I feel like if somebody is going to be like oh like I want Chanel they would be more likely to get like a Chanel pair of earrings or like you know Chanel shoes rather than like a Chanel handbag which is going to be 8,000 plus I think it's definitely designed to keep out you know the middle class it's just even when you go to those stores like it's just not a very welcoming environment. Like you got to know the sales associate, you know, you're, you're not going to get like that personal shopping experience unless they know you're going to buy. They won't really pay attention to you. And, and like you can't buy Chanel online, by the way, like you can't, you know, you can't buy it on their website. So if you want to buy Chanel, you have to buy it secondhand. 
yeah. uh, online or, you know, then again, you want to have that relationship with a sales associate so that you could get the best shopping experience and see all the bags that they have in stock. Because a lot of times they'll hide those bags for their customers, for their clients. <laughs> I knew that this was a practice with um, the brand Hermes. Mm-hmm. I know that they're so exclusive with stuff like that. But I didn't know that other brands did this too. So Chanel and all the, uh, all the other brands do stuff like that too. That's very like, it's very classist. I think just Chanel for the most part. I mean, yesterday I went into Prada and got a Prada Mm -hmm. bag, but it wasn't like that necessarily at Prada. I mean, they did hide that bag. That bag wasn't on display. And um, I had to ask if they had the nylon version of that bag in leather. And I think they had to like gauge my interest if I was really interested in buying. And so when he brought it out, I was like, all right, yeah, I'll get it. Because like, I wanted to just buy a new bag and like treat mm-hmm. myself, whatever. I don't do this all the time. <laughs> don't want to give people the wrong idea. But I think those stores, they want to like really gauge your interest before they show you the stuff that they have out yeah. back. And then there's stuff out front that's like the trendy stuff, like the nylon bags and like the stuff that you'll see online. But like the really, you know, the more expensive stuff that's more exclusive, maybe the stuff that's low in stock is going to be right. hidden. And I think that, you know, brands like Chanel do that even more, you know, sales associates, they have clients that they talk to frequently about what they have in stock. And so they'll save stuff for Mm -hmm. them. Um, I'm part of like a Chanel group on Facebook. And so I see that stuff all the time, like, hey, reach out to my sales associate if you're looking for this. So it's kind of like a uh, the shopping experience kind of like happens behind closed doors. It's not like the typical uh, shopping experience that you and I would have just like going online and just buying whatever we like, like you kind of just got to know someone. (laughs) It's Right. And I've, I've, I've only heard about that from like the, the Hermes perspective. Like I know a couple people who buy Hermes and they tell me all about like the whole, you know, you got to build a relationship with your sales associate Mm -hmm. before they give you the high ticket items. Like you need to go into the store. Basically, you basically have to kind of build rapport with them and you have to like buy the scarves and buy the belts and buy whatever is available already in stock there. And if you keep going in there and building your relationship with them and you keep spending money, then they will be like, oh, by the way, like we have, you know, a Kelly or a Birkin bag, you know, in stock. Would you like to see it? And it's just like, it's ridiculous because you already know they do have it in stock. They just Mm -hmm. don't want to give it to you. And it's interesting because... I read about this in this book. It's called Deluxe, How Lu- How Luxury Lost Its Luster. It's by Dana Thomas, who is, um, I think she's like an investigative journalist or something. But she talks about the history of the luxury market and, you know, the classism that's behind it, the reason why luxury... It, it's designed to keep working class and middle class people out because if every if it was accessible mm-hmm. to everybody, it's no longer a luxury. It, it's just if it's available to everybody, that is what takes away the luxury appeal. But I just found it so interesting that it didn't sit well with me how exclusive the in-store shopping experience is. Um, and it, it's so interesting because you you look at brands like Hermes and Chanel who still continue to do this kind of like socialite way of selling things like, you know, you need to have you need to make your sales associate your bestie or something like that. And then you get the real hookups um, versus like nowadays you can walk into a Christian Louboutin store and get a pair mm-hmm. of red bottom heels or you can also order it from their website online. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there are some brands that I feel like as time has passed, this book that I mentioned, Deluxe, um, they talk about how there were brands like Christian Louboutin and um, it used to be more exclusive. And now because they're trying to cater to the masses, they make their shopping experience more accessible online. And they they don't, it's not the same experience as Chanel and Hermes, which is like, 
I feel like I'm stuck in this place where like, I don't know how I feel about it because I think it's good that it's being made more accessible to people. But it also gives us, it just gives the masses like this false sense of belonging. Because if you're spending several months to buy a pair of shoes that you're like, essentially what what is mm-hmm. what is happening is that if you're struggling or if you're putting on a credit card or something and you're struggling to pay it off, you're kind of not living within your means. And so it just goes a lot to say about like the perception of what is luxury. Why do we strive to buy those things and I think it's okay to you know want nice things here and there but then we have to question like what makes us consume the way that we do Mm -hmm. you know why do we want that bag who told us that that bag was something that we wanted or did we actually want it ourselves so Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's so much there (laughs) yeah and I think that you know a lot of it has to do with our um social circles yeah and not just like the people around us physically, but also like Instagram, like all this stimuli that we surround ourselves with. That's why we consume the way we do. I mean, it's all about, you know, the social pressures that, you know, not necessarily people putting it on us, but we put on ourselves from seeing what other people have. It's, you know, that FOMO, that need for belonging. Yeah. And that's just advertising 101. I mean, that's the whole reason why people consume is to, um, you know, fit into some sort of um, category or just lifestyle be part of something. Um, It's a very social experience. And so that that also explains why influencer marketing is so powerful too. like, Mm -hmm. people are very influenced by uh, what their friends have, or just if they see like a bunch of influencers, they have a certain bag, okay, now I want it too. It's trendy, and it's cool. And I want it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've been a victim of that too. Like when I um, first hopped on Instagram as an influencer, I got really carried away and I was seeing like Mm -hmm. a lot of like influencers um, with like the Gucci belt. And I was just like, I want one. Like I never realized that I wanted one so badly, but I'm seeing it so much that I was like, okay, I'm sold. I really want one now. The more Mm -hmm. that I saw it, the more I was bombarded with it. It was like, I'm not even really looking at ads anymore. It's like, I'm looking at influencers And I think what we don't realize is that influencers are basically like they're the new billboard ad. They're Mm -hmm. walking billboards. And even though it's not a sponsored post, they are promoting these brands just by repping them, by wearing them. And I feel like that's kind of a big reason why fast fashion brands like Fashion Nova have gained so much traction. Because before, I feel like probably like give it 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, um, really the only fast fashion brands that the most... That, that the majority of people were really buying from was like Forever 21 and mm-hmm. all of the um, the corporate fast fashion brands that you saw in malls. And now that we're moving into this like online space, now there's more competition. We're not just shopping from Forever 21 or Zara or H&M, you know, all the mall stores. But now we're competing with like Fashion Nova, which give it 10, 20 years ago, if people saw that online, they probably would have been like, what is this scam? Like, I don't trust it or like especially she in yeah when she first came on the market people were like is this even Mm -hmm. like legit I remember that yeah and now all of this influencer marketing now people are buying from she in even though we know that like still the quality is not the best you know inconsistent sizing um we're buying from that now if 20 years ago we would have thought it was a scam so (laughs) it's very interesting yep I remember that I used to think they were a scam too and I actually worked with them like years ago but I don't know. They've just been so problematic lately. I don't, I don't buy anything from Shein now, but there are other fast fashion brands that I do shop from that I'm sure are just as problematic, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's kind of like pick your poison at this point. It's like pick your poison. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I mean, I shop from Australian fast fashion brands, which, you know, a few years ago, I would I would have never done that. <laughs> but it's just evolved. Right. So what yeah. what's one of your biggest beefs with fast fashion as a consumer? Because I think for me, it's either quality or sizing and consistency. But I want to hear like your opinions on it. Definitely sizing lately. Like, and I, I know I've talked about this before, but like, sizing and fast fashion is so inconsistent lately. And I don't know if it was always inconsistent, or if I'm just noticing it now. But I've been noticing it with like all fast fashion brands like Zara, um, all the Australian brands, if I buy something that's like a small or an extra small, like it's like significantly small, <laughs> or, you know, it just doesn't fit right, or it doesn't look flattering. And right, I have heard from many sources um, that this is done intentionally so that you buy more clothes. And it makes so much sense. Like if you don't like how you know your clothes look on you, what do you do? Yeah. You just buy more clothes so that you can find something that actually does look good. And that is my biggest issue with fast fashion right now. But has this issue, like, is this new? Like, am I just now noticing it? I feel like it's always been an issue, but it was a little bit more subtle mm-hmm. back then because we didn't consume as much online. Yeah. Like before, the, the rule of thumb was people never bought clothes online. We would go to the mall mm-hmm. to ensure that it looks good. And now, because, you know, buying online is so much more accessible, you know, there's free shipping, there's yeah. better stock, you don't have to get exhausted walking around the mall. That's become now the go-to for shopping with clothes. And now we're just seeing the sizing inconsistencies more. One of my friends works in, you know, like uh, with textiles and, you know, she's a designer and, you know, she's very familiar with like the way the fast fashion ecosystem works. And I was actually talking to her about this and I was was like do you think that it is intentional that brands you know kind of don't care about their sizing and she actually offered a really interesting perspective where she said like I don't even know if it's intentional I think it's just a byproduct Mm -hmm. of a bigger problem which is fast fashion in in essence is made to be fast so the production is very instant which means that like if you look into the way that they're designing these clothes there's usually like one pattern so I don't know if you guys sew but just explain is when you're making clothes and they're made of little tiny like pieces that are cut out and you need to create a pattern and then you change the pattern. You have one for small, medium, large and extra large or whatever sizings. And so to save them money, they will only make a pattern with like um, very, very slight differences or, you know, the patterns from say like one of their blouses versus like a different blouse is going to be completely different. So even though it's the same manufacturer, the sizing is going to be different from every article of clothing and because they're, they don't care because they're trying to pump out as much as they can as quickly as they can. And just it's I almost feel like it's kind of like a byproduct and additional benefit to these companies that, you know, if it doesn't fit, like the person is going to be too lazy to return or for whatever reason, they don't want to return it. And they just go buy more. So I feel like that's almost like a like an afterthought. But I mean, I wouldn't hold it against, you know, corporate brands that like, maybe this was intentional or not intentional. But I feel like a lot of it is just because, Um, they're trying to make and produce clothes as quickly as possible that it just gets really sloppy. These clothes were not really made for people in mind. They were made for sales in mind, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, going back to the, you know, how people will buy clothes that doesn't fit and, you know, like people don't want to return them. um, How often does it happen for you that you order clothes and either never wear them or you don't return them? because of poor fit or poor quality? Like, what do you do with those clothes? A lot of times I just won't return it, especially if I bought it online and that retailer isn't available near me. I mean, if it's a retailer that I can uh, visit their store, for example, if it's Abercrombie, I could just go to the mall and return it. And I do. 
But if it's a retailer that's not near me, then I just will keep it <laughs> and just like mm-hmm. um, try and make it fit. Yeah. Um, or I will just sort of, you know, try and sell it on Poshmark. So yeah, I mean, you, I do waste money on fast fashion. I mean, if I were to look at all the money that I've wasted on fast fashion, it would probably be like as much as probably like a luxury uh, article of clothing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I feel like that's something though, that like a lot of people it's, it's like, it's not even just restricted, restricted to just Mm -hmm. you. I feel like lots of us throughout our lifetime have like spent thousands of dollars on clothes that we don't wear. I I'm trying to be a little bit more vigilant about this where like I buy clothes if I'm not like a hundred percent happy with the fit to either alter it to my liking um, so that it does fit and that it does make me feel comfortable or, you know, like you said, sell it on Poshmark or at worst, if you can't try to get your money back in some way to like give it to somebody who could actually who who would, it would be a better fit for. So how mm-hmm. I am curious then, like how much of what what is a percentage of your wardrobe that you actually wear then? Like what percent and also what percentage of it do you actually oh like? <laughs> oh, good questions. And, you know. I just, I feel bad, like, thinking about all the clothes that, like, I buy and then don't wear because it doesn't look good. Um, I would probably say maybe, like, a quarter of the clothes that I buy, I feel like doesn't look good on me. And I don't wear it, like, more than once or at all. Maybe less than a quarter, maybe, like, 20%, which is pretty high. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't feel guilty. Honestly, this is the yeah. fashion confessional. It I is. feel like we're just it voicing is. out the opinions of every everybody's got this issue. Yeah. I feel like, especially with a lot of like women, I feel like we have mm-hmm. really big wardrobes and there's always that familiar plight of, I don't know what to wear. Like, I don't have anything to wear, even though you've got like a closet that's bursting at the seams, right? Exactly. And that's my dilemma all the time. And I just have to always remember to give myself grace and not feel like my body is the problem. If I don't fit into that size four shirt from Princess Polly, it's not my fault. It's their terrible sizing. And I hope that people remember that too when they're trying on clothes or if they feel like it doesn't look good or fit right. It's not your fault. It's fast fashion. Right. One of the bigger concerns that I have with it is just because thinking about, you know, the sizing inconsistencies and stuff, Mm -hmm. it is just like a breeding ground for like body dysmorphia, for eating disorders. I was victim of of that too. You know, I struggled with an eating disorder for like 12 years because of this, because of this fast fashion and the capitalism of fashion. Oh my God. See, this is like, it's just so common, right? It's just the the capitalism behind fast fashion Mm -hmm. is just, it's designed to be fat phobic essentially because it doesn't see people as people it sees garments as whether or not it's marketable are our bodies marketable is the size that i am marketable does it make money and that's the reality of it is that's why we see a lot of misogynistic fat phobic stuff that goes on in you know like the fashion world thinking about what you said about wearability like about 20 25 percent of your wardrobe you don't use I feel like that's a common thing for a lot of people and what I've tried to integrate into my own wardrobe is the idea of capsule wardrobes with capsule wardrobes basically it's just like you have wardrobe staples that you can make interchangeable like they mix and match for every outfit and they're basically just like essential staples Mm -hmm. that will stand the test of time and withstand trends what are your style staple recommendations for, you know, people who are trying to build a more functional wardrobe that has like more wearability potential, I guess? Yeah. Hit us with the style. Rights. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I don't have a capsule wardrobe, but I do have staples that I would recommend or at least staples that have worked for me. I'm a huge fan of bodysuits. I just feel like they're just 
really effortless. They work well. They've been convenient for me. So I like to stick with them. And then I like a nice pair of elevated jeans, like a nice pair of jeans that I could just wear out or wear to work or just like something that makes me feel like a little bit elevated. So I feel like, you know, I'm getting value out of these jeans and that they're not just like any pair of jeans. So yeah, that's pretty much my staple, you know, like a nice white top, something like crisp and just flowy. So yeah, I I hope that answers the question. I agree with you with with the whole having at least one pair of elevated jeans because I feel like that's important. There's mm-hmm. going to be situations where you don't want to look like overdressed, but you still want to look good. And it's, it's good to have that perfect fit, yeah. perfect distress go-to jeans yeah. that you can kind of throw on and not put much thought into. I second the body suits also. I feel like that's a big thing. You know, sometimes you just want something like minimal, but something that just feels like the fit is very polished. And sometimes I feel like body suits are a really good way to just kind of give that polished look so you can show off your belt or whatever it is, kind of cinch your waist. So yes, I second the body suits. I think for me... I also, uh, I try to get like, you know, things like bodysuits and jeans and just like t-shirts and standard button-up blouses in like black, white, and maybe like a neutral, like a camel or a tan. Because I feel like with that, you can kind of easily mix and match. So Mm -hmm. those are like my little style staples because realistically, like I think it's hard to be a like a fashion purist and just restrict yourself to a capsule wardrobe, especially like if you want to stay trendy too, like the capsule wardrobe, it's not for everybody. I've tried it and it is really difficult. I want to indulge in trends here and there. But if you can't be like that purist that can just stick to a capsule wardrobe, you can always just, you know, have your your go to style staples. And I think for for people, it's going to vary from person to person. For me and you, it's like we need the good pair of denim. But then I know that there are people who just like hate denim and they would rather live in yoga pants. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. I guess with style staples, it really just for everybody in general, I think it just depends on what your personal style is, your personal preferences, and then just find a good pair. Like if you're that yoga pants wearing person, find a good pair of yoga pants. (laughs) Yeah, I'm currently wearing yoga pants. Now I have so many pairs of yoga pants and I actually go out in them too. And you know, I'll just, I'll wear them with my Gucci slides when I go out and I feel more elegant. Right. I guess that's a good example of high low fashion. Right. It's that high, it's the high low fashion. I can wear them as long as I wear the Gucci slides with them. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I I love yoga pants. And I also second the neutrals part because I feel like neutrals just give you so much flexibility in your wardrobe versus buying something that is, you know, for example, you know, really bold color that's just not trendy anymore. And like, mustard you still remember yeah the mustard (laughs) yellow i lean more towards the neutrals yeah i feel like it's just always a safe pick black white and then like neutrals yeah so when we talk about like longevity of your wardrobe and like the wearability factors are always gonna be the same especially if you integrate trendy stuff into your wardrobe long term do you see your current wardrobe as it is right now aging along with you because i feel like things like crop tops short shorts you know, five inch stilettos, like those are some things that I feel like people will eventually outgrow as Mm -hmm. their taste in fashion changes. And, you know, their desire for comfort becomes more of a priority as they get older. So do you feel like your current wardrobe right now, would you see yourself wearing that like when you become like 60? Obviously not. (laughs) I think that a lot of my wardrobe, maybe the jeans I'd still be wearing at 60. Who knows? I mean, yeah, if you get a good pair of jeans, things still last. (laughs) That's why it's so important to, if you're buying designer, to invest in the bags because those bags always come back in style. 
and you could always sell them. Right. I mean, their value might go up. Right. I mean, that's interesting because <laughs> things like uh, Gucci, you know, I think in the early 2000s was when the brand started to decline. Mm-hmm. And if you wore a Gucci bag, people would be like, ew, you're so out of touch. Yeah. And now it's coming back. Like there's this Gucci revival. And yeah. so all of the vintage Gucci mm-hmm. like went up in price. So it's mm-hmm. like, I will talk to like a lot of personal finance professionals and they'll be like, it's just not the best investment to invest in something like an Hermes handbag versus like actually investing in stocks. And I get that. But also if fashion and your wardrobe is very important to you, Mm -hmm. then you might be able to kind of make your investment work for you if you buy it and you know that it's going to hold value or go up later. Like that's just kind of the thing. Like I I see fashion as I guess like a subtle and secondary stock market of sorts because we we put value on it. So yeah, I think what you said Mm -hmm. is really true. Like, you know, if you're investing in your wardrobe, it makes more sense to invest in things like handbags that it holds its value later. So if if you wind up not liking it anymore or something, you can always try to sell it and at least get some of your money back, right? Yeah, I mean, even Chanel shoes are reselling for significantly higher than what people bought them for. Like there are these boots that my sister bought that sold for that are selling for like 1600 at the Chanel store and people are reselling them for over $7,000 on like trade C and fashion file. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because these boots are so exclusive and they only have like a few in stock. And when they, when they sell out, like people feel like they missed out. So they just, people buy them. Apparently there's a market for that. Otherwise, why would people be selling them for over $7,000? Wow. When they originally sold for $1,600. Like that's crazy. That is a crazy, that's not even like, that's a really good stock. Yeah. That's what I was going to say that I was like, if you guys are interested in stocks, you might want to look into fashion. I would still definitely pick stocks over fashion, but it is interesting to see the way that money moves through the luxury market because you wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to flip something that was like fast fashion, yeah. but you could definitely flip something that was a luxury good, which is really crazy to me. It shows a lot about the way that we perceive consumerism and value and capitalism, you know, in this country, just the way that we consume. So that actually mm-hmm. reminds me in our um, in our previous podcast episode on your podcast on Channel Your Influence, we talked a lot about hyper-consumerism and how it's tied to capitalism and like modern politics. So with the awareness that you have towards the corruption in the fast fashion industry, what are the changes that you're making in your consumption habits that you can kind of share with us? Because I feel like a lot of people on a certain level, like we are aware of the fact that we as a collective consume too much, but individuals don't know mm-hmm. how they can change the way they consume. So like, what would you tell people? Like, what are you trying to do currently? I would say just be conscious of what you have in your closet. So do a closet audit, Mm -hmm. you know, like go through your closet, look at what you have in stock, because you'd be surprised. I'll go through my closet and find things that like, I totally forgot I had that. And like, that's something that I would totally buy at a store. So, you know, just go through your closet, remember what you have in stock and wear what you already have. And I I know that's hard to do, but like rewear some of what you have. And if you don't want to rewear it, don't need it or sell it on Poshmark. And then after that, you know, then I sort of justify it to myself. Like, okay, I went through my closet. Maybe I could buy like a couple more tops, but I would be conscious of, uh, am I buying things that are going to be a staple? Am I buying things that are just going to, you know, not be trendy in like a couple months? Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep adding to that waste. I think it's just a matter of reminding yourself of your past behavior by like doing that closet audit and just being conscious of that so that you don't repeat that mistake. Yeah. And sort of just like limiting the amount of times that I 
shop each month too. So, you know, just like mm -hmm. trying not to shop more than like once a month. So that's sort of what I've been doing. Yeah. I like what you said about checking what's in stock in your closet because I do see it like that. Yeah. So what I do is because like my closet's a little smaller, I use the other closet in the guest bedroom and I will basically just switch out my active closet. So like it's summertime right now, like the stuff that's in my main closet is all summer, spring and summer stuff. And I put all my winter stuff away. So when the seasons change and I switch over to the fall winter wardrobe, that's when I can look at all of the clothes of fall and winter. And I'm like, would I wear this this season? Or is this like, am I over this? Should I donate it? Should I sell it? Am I still in love with it? Mm -hmm. And when you're like constantly like doing this every quarter or every, like twice a year or once a year or something like that, you wind up finding like little gems. Oh, this was something that I never got to wear and I would have bought this. Okay, cool. It's like shopping your wardrobe. You just got something new basically. Mm -hmm. And that's what I encourage people to do is just like, yeah, look through your wardrobe because if you find stuff, it's kind of like giving your wardrobe a second breath of life and you don't have to spend money to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, for me too, I used to have more time for this and I know that not everyone has time for this, but I would put together outfits and I would like take pictures of them and like keep them on an album on my phone so that say mm -hmm. if my friend is like, hey, I know it's really last minute, but I'm in the area. Do you want to go get brunch? I can kind of flip through my stock of outfits. I could just pick something out and throw it on. That's so smart. It's a really good way to like stay aware of the articles of clothing that you have in your wardrobe and not mm -hmm. have to sit there in front of your wardrobe for like an hour. You're just like burnt out and exhausted and overwhelmed at your options. Mm -hmm. Lastly, too, what I've heard also works. I put all of my my hangers the opposite direction and I will pull it based on like if I want to wear it, I'll pull it and I'll put it back the other way. Mm -hmm. So if I see if I look at my closet and I see that over time, there's still stuff hanging on hangers that are backwards, it shows me that I'm probably not going to touch this. Hmm. So if it's been sitting there in the opposite way for like six months or like a year, I think it's safe to say that like I can either donate or sell it because I have not touched it. Smart. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like we have to do all these like smart little psychology hacks on ourselves to like mm -hmm. keep all the consumption like in check. Because it's yeah. so expensive. It's so expensive to buy. And, you know, things are like marked up like crazy. And you know that it's like, you'll see a dress that's super cute. It's like $200. You know, it's not worth $200. And speaking of like pricing. So I know that you said in the last podcast that we we're together, you said you used to work at Macy's mm -hmm. and you saw firsthand how those retail markups work. So can you yeah. share a little bit more about the way that profit margins and like retail markups are exploitative? Yeah, I mean, Macy's was my first job. Um, I worked there in the juniors department when I was like 18. So I don't remember too much. But I do remember that, you know, we would have sales all the time. And that tells me that the original price was significantly marked up because there would be different types of sales, there would be 25% off, there would be the 15% off, there would be the 50% off, and then 75. And it's like, okay, like how much should this really cost? Right. It just makes you think, okay, the original price is clearly a scam. You don't want to be buying things original price because you're not getting the actual value. But then how long do you wait after something goes on sale? Do you wait for it to go on sale even more? Right. When do you, when does it stop? When do you know that you're getting the best deal? And unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, things are way marked up 
than they should be. Yeah, no, it's true. And it, it's difficult to say because I think part of the way that sales work on a psychological level is that there are some people who will see like, oh, it's on sale and it's only like 10, 15, 20% off, but they're going to be, you know, causing a dent when they buy it and then there's less stock for people like me I'm like 20% does not really ruffle like it does not rile me up to like buy right mm-hmm. I will be interested if it's like 50 or 75% off but my fear is if I wait there is like a possibility that it will never go on sale that low and two what if it does go on sale that low and then there's no more in stock in my size so FOMO is like, I swear, it causes so much psychological damage. Yeah. And I do know that Macy's, if you bought something like within days of it going on sale, you can ask for a price adjustment after it goes on sale. Yeah. People don't do that though. Like, I just feel like you could, like they make it available, but it's like people are, you know, like, I feel like the vast majority of us are too lazy to go to the store and like, give me my $5. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's something that's more common with boomers. I feel like, like we millennials are too non-confrontational. Like we don't want to do that when you factor it in, it's like, yeah, you could probably get $5 back on that, you know, price adjustment. But, you know, mm-hmm. the amount, the cost of like going to the store, spending gas money or like getting an Uber there, you know, it's just kind of like, it's more than that. So we'll just kind of eat the cost. Yeah, it's like shipping. It's like returning an article of clothing. Right. Is it really worth it? It's the same thing. Yeah, it's it just it goes to show like we, we do wind up wasting a lot of money. Yeah. When I purchase something, I purchase like with intent, with thought. Maybe I'm extreme, but I need to have a burning desire to buy this because mm-hmm. if not, I know that like I get buyer's remorse more than I get FOMO. <gasps> yeah. So like for me, I'm very like I'm very frugal with my money. Mm-hmm. And so like I'll buy something and I know if 110% my heart wasn't in it. I wind up looking at the item and I get like resentful and I wind up returning it or selling it or something. So like, that's where I get my buyer's remorse. Mm-hmm. For me, like dealing with that is a lot stronger than dealing with fear of missing out. I agree with that. Yeah. Like if I didn't want the item enough and say like it finally went out of stock, I'll be a little sad, but then eventually I'll forget because especially if it's something like fast fashion, you just wind up getting bombarded with more things that take your interest. So you wind up forgetting about it later, mm-hmm. just as fast as the fast fashion industry is. So is our interest in certain articles of clothing it's just as fast so yeah we got to keep up with it that buyer's remorse is like one of the worst feelings and yeah no I I have felt that recently with like a few different things that I bought Mm -hmm. that were fast fashion like oh why did I buy this like this was totally an impulse buy like what was I thinking like right yeah, it looks good on the model, but it's not gonna look good on me. Like, why did I buy it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's hard because I I mean I almost like that too. I think for me, how I've learned to control that is like I will wait a couple days. I'll just kind of like get it off my mind. And if I'm still thinking about the item, okay, maybe that is something worth buying. But usually for me, I'll give it some good thought. And if I haven't forgot about it, that's how I know that I still want it. But if I forget about it, And, you know, like maybe it might pop up again and I'm just like, oh, shoot, like maybe I should buy it. And then I see that it's sold out. Mm -hmm. It's not going to break my heart because I forgot about it eventually at some point. Right. There's only room in my heart for so much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's so much stuff in fast fashion that's constantly like competing for my love. And like only one person can take me home. (laughs) There's always going to be there's always going to be something new in fast fashion, too. So you can't really have that FOMO as much with fast fashion because, you know, that when it's out of stock, that's it. It's life cycle has ended. Like it's no longer trendy. Right. That buyer's remorse is more so a bigger problem than that fear of missing out. <laughs> you just got to try to keep up with it as much as possible and just kind of like really settle. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It says a lot about like your conscious and like your spending habits. If you're like 
experiencing more vi- buyer's remorse and feeling worse about that than you are ab- like fear of missing out because you'll always recover from FOMO mm-hmm. but with buyer's remorse your wallet will suffer from that and like you'll feel even worse about it it's, it's very interesting yeah. when you like kind of look at the contrast between so sometimes you know like we can't avoid purchasing new clothes you know like we're talking about fast fashion we're just constantly consuming we can't buy new clothes like underwear or like mm-hmm. swimwear for example we can't thrift those things we can't thrift underwear so in this situation where we would have to buy you know new underwear new swimwear how do we consciously consume with as little environmental impact as possible <sighs> I wish I had the answer to that you know I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to learn that myself because I have been pretty wasteful over the years and like I'm the type of person that mm-hmm. you know if I see something like yeah, I'll contemplate it. Like I'll contemplate like buying it, but like I'm more likely to buy it than not buy it. So I'm I'm still learning how to navigate that. Right. But yeah, I, I, what are you doing to like <laughs> manage that? Because I think you do a better job than me. I I'm very anti-capitalist. I feel like most of you guys know this by now, but also at the same time, I also have to acknowledge that like in a capitalist society, I live in a capitalist society. Like how do I just not participate? You can't opt out because the very existence of me under capitalism, I have to consume. Yeah. And so I just kind of give myself the grace to not feel like shit if I have to go buy new underwear. Like I went and I bought new underwear the other day. And whereas before where I was like, no, I have to be a conscious consumer. You know, I was very radical and I was putting all of the blame on me to to make conscious and environmentally um, like feasible decisions with my consumption. But the reality is, is that like these corporate businesses who are producing this stuff, they're the ones who are going to have a bigger carbon footprint than me choosing not to consume as an individual. And so I try to give myself the grace that if I do have to buy something, mm-hmm. I'm not going to whip myself. I'm not going to give myself 50 lashes because I have to buy something. You know, I'm still out here like advocating for good policy, you yeah. know, environmental policies that, you know, actually protect our environment and the mm-hmm. people who live in it. Yeah. And I think that you can challenge these systems, challenge fast fashion and the capitalism of fashion while at the same time still being at the mercy of it as a consumer. So for me, like that's one thing is giving myself the grace. And two is just like really being aware of my spending habits from a psychological perspective. Um, when I see something that I like, I have to constantly tell myself, is this something that I wanted? Or is this something that I only want because I've been exposed to it on social media, or I've been marketed to mm-hmm. the way that you know, marketing works, especially in the fast fashion world is they use their psychology against you. Like there's something actually called consumer psychology, yeah. that, um, you know, these marketing heads of companies will actually study because they want to know what makes you open up your wallet. It's like psychological warfare that I have to keep myself aware of. And I have to stay vigilant about like protecting myself against it. Mm-hmm. That's the way that I see it. I just yeah. when I can approach it from a logical perspective in that way, I'm able to kind of like compartmentalize the emotional attachment that leads to FOMO. Once I'm like, I feel like I'm smarter about it. Like I can kind of Jedi mind trick my way out of it. And that's, I guess that's the best way. I also wish I had like a good answer for this, but I think it's really just mentally fortifying yourself to be smarter, outsmart the marketing that's being fed to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I am an advertiser's like ideal consumer because I am so easily influenced by everything like ads. I'm easily influenced by other influencers. Like if I'm out somewhere and I see someone, you know, eating an ice cream, I'm going to want that ice cream too. Like I'm just so suggestible. And maybe that's why I'm in this Instagram field too, where I'm taking part in this conspicuous consumption because I've just been a victim of it. (laughs) And I don't want to like 
just not take accountability. Like, yes, I realize that I am easily suggestible and just like consume way more than I need to. But at the same time, you know, I need to give myself grace. Like you said, we are part of this capitalist system. I'm also anti-capitalist, but you know, being that we are in this system, there's only so much that we can do. And that's like the dangerous part of the radical left. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, like, I'm not radical left. I am. Um, or that I'm not anti-capitalist. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that like, it's the approach that often like I have mm-hmm. an issue with is that there's putting so much fault and blame on consumers. I yeah. feel like a lot of people are just kind of like, why are you buying like they make you feel like shit for it, right? Yeah. And it's just like, I'm a victim. And that's, that's not to say like, oh, I'm gonna just use that as a cop out to like consume, consume, consume. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have to give people the grace to be human beings. And like, we can't always outwit and outsmart consumer psychology. And it is what it is. And you also shouldn't have to explain yourself. I think it's like, you know, where your heart lies. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're out here advocating for good policy to minimize environmental impact and things like that. I feel like that makes a bigger difference. Pushing for policy more though than like scrutinizing somebody for buying a t-shirt. Yeah. It's a matter of perspective. Some people would say like, oh, well, if everybody was a conscious consumer, it would be different. And I agree. But, you know, with class divide, we're going to get there. <laughs> we got to get there first. Like, and with class divide, it's really difficult to say, like, how can you force like a working class person to consume more ethically when what is within their budget is fast fashion? Like people who mm-hmm. are, you know, like they have less money, they're not going to be inclined to spend $50 on a white T-shirt because it's ethically produced when they know that they could just buy a $5 t-shirt at Walmart and they can spend the $45 remaining on groceries. Yeah. People really fail to kind of see that perspective that being an environmentalist can sometimes actually be very inherently classist as well. And we need to be made aware of environmentalism and even veganism are privileges in itself. And Mm -hmm. it's not, it's a luxury that not many people can give themselves over to. So, I mean, with that being said, we're talking a lot about things like environmental impact and you know influence as an influencer do you feel more like you're influenced by others or do you feel like you influence others more than you are influenced because I feel like uh, oftentimes my honest perspective I feel like influencers are more influenced than they are influential Mm -hmm. because I think very often especially when it comes to political stuff they decide not to speak up about important things because they suddenly feel like they don't have any influence which is yeah. ironic. Too. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I definitely think I'm more influenced, um, at least on a consumption level. But yeah, I do think that I have influenced some people yeah. on a couple of things during, you know, the whole vaccine period, like a, a few months ago, I was sharing that I was getting the vaccine. And I wasn't trying to like push it down people's throats. But I was sharing that I was getting it. And I know that there were a couple of people Mm-hmm. who I know personally who've said that they didn't want to get the vaccine. And then after they saw my stories, all of a sudden their tones shifted and they got, they got the vaccine. So mm-hmm. I think we're all influential on some level. Like people listen to their friends, their colleagues, people are easily influenced by other people. I don't think you right. need to be like a influencer with like hundreds of thousands of followers to be influential. Like you don't, you just have to be someone that shares your life authentically. Yeah. And that's how I want to start using my platform and like just share tidbits like that during the whole thing with Palestine a couple months ago, like I wanted to share that too, but I wanted to share it in a way that, you know, that I wouldn't get backlash or get accused of being something that I'm not. So I feel like maybe that was influential too, to some extent, because I was trying to destigmatize standing up for Palestine. Yeah. So I think little things like that do make an impact. 
And I think that they are influential and we shouldn't minimize how influential we can be. But yes, to answer your question, I think I'm easily influenced, but I think I, I might be a little bit influential too. Mm-hmm. Just, but I think everyone has that capacity to do that. Yeah, it is interesting because I've always felt like you don't need to have a platform to be influential because that is often the way that we communicate with each other. You know, like we give people advice and things like that from our friends and family. And I think brands have really realized that everybody has a potential to be influential. My issue is now I'm seeing a lot of corporate activism because I'm Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of brands who are like, oh, we can use our brands for influence too. While you could do that, yes, I feel like it's very performative because corporate activism is like the biggest, what is it like idiom, conundrum? What is the right word for it? But it's like ironic, right? You're only doing this to get people to consume more from you. So like, I know with it being Pride Month, we've been seeing a lot of performative corporate activism from brands and it's so cringy. Mm -hmm. If, If you see a brand do something exploitative, hypocritical, unethical, do you personally feel like people actually stop purchasing from that brand? Or is there a cultural disconnect between individual morals and company morals? Because like, I see a lot about cancel culture. And sometimes I don't feel like cancel culture has a lasting impact on corporate businesses, because they always bounce back. Yeah, unfortunately, they do bounce back. (laughs) The money. (laughs) But there were a couple of brands that I canceled last year and have just stop consuming from, you know, I didn't really consume from them much Mm -hmm. to begin with, but like Reformation, for example, there was a lot that came out about how their founder was extremely rude and just like, you know, I guess racist too. Um, And they wrote this big apology, but like, it's just like, yeah, you guys are just sorry you got caught, whatever. Um, But like Reformation's supposed to be like a sustainable fashion brand, right? They're supposed to be like all about you know, the anti fast fashion and like, no, I will never consume from them ever again. Ew. Right. Um, I'm not going to consume from someone that is a racist. Like, no, thanks. I think that for some people that matters. And, you know, I care about stuff like that for other people, they don't care as much (laughs) and they will continue consuming from that brand. So I guess it just depends on the person. Yeah. And like, that's, that's what's difficult because I feel like if people are being marketed enough to that is compatible with their psychology, like they will forgive brands. Mm -hmm. It is interesting because what's recent, what's recently happened was that Victoria's Secret, they had a group of angels, which were like these super inhumanly beautiful, like models who were like size double zero. And now they are you know, they've picked up on how unrealistic that image of women are. So now they've shifted over. Now they're making like this Victoria's Secret collective of humans to do away with the angels and replace them. And I'm like, that's stupid. Because first of all, the people that you've selected are still very beautiful. They're all still celebrities. And two, you're not doing this because you care about women and the liberation of women in terms of gender roles. You don't care about that. You care because people are no longer purchasing from your company because we've got brands like um, Savage X Fenty by Rihanna. We've got people who are serving more of a positive attitude towards bodies in this industry. And now they're being threatened. So now they're trying to pivot because they don't want to lose money. And to me, I feel like you are so tone deaf. But I do know, even with that being said, people are still going to consume from them. I personally stopped consuming from them over a decade ago, but I know that people are still going to be sold by their marketing. Definitely. People will forgive them, I'm sure. (laughs) I think it's funny how Victoria's Secret just didn't change until it absolutely hurt their bottom line. Didn't they declare like bankruptcy or something like that? Or were they close to it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Until then, like they just refused to change for years. Yes, and like they were yeah. never body positive. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it comes off as extremely inauthentic. It's like the equivalent of someone apologizing after they got caught saying something racist. Like right. it's like, no, you're not sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. Right. There are so many lingerie brands now than there were before, like a decade ago. And I think that um, something like Victoria's Secret will just have a maybe a harder time bouncing back just mm-hmm. because it's a different demographic now. We've got, you know, millennials, Gen Z, we're more culturally aware. We're not really interested in like outdated brands like Victoria's Secret anymore. Like we right. want indie brands, trendy brands. We want to consume from brands that are actually authentic and have real values. Right. And, you know, like with that being said, we talked earlier about the real power is not within the consumers, but it's within the corporations. We are at the mercy of what they offer us in terms of goods and services. It's interesting because, you know, it is really difficult for us to look at a brand, like when they're making these, I guess, ethical changes, they're they're rearranging their like moral compass and things like that. It's really difficult for consumers to feel like they can actually trust that this is genuine. Victoria's Secret just does not feel genuine to me. Like their moves don't feel genuine after all that they've done, yeah, like you said, they're only sorry because they got caught being fat phobic and they were caught being transphobic and they were caught being misogynist, mm-hmm. right? And catering to the male gaze. Do you feel like there should be more weight and emphasis on individuals consuming from, from brands that they want to see? Or is it more important for brands to produce more ethically and sustainably mm-hmm. and make that pivot mm-hmm. in a way that is genuine? Yeah, I mean, I don't think brands will hold themselves accountable or will make that mm-hmm. promise to be more ethical and sustainable unless consumers push for that. Yeah. So there are some brands that make that part of their identity. Like some brands are just sustainable by default, but other brands, you know, need that consumer push to like make them better people. <laughs> I mean, behind these brands are people. These people make decisions that are harmful to our environment. Right, right. They make decisions that uh, may be harmful to workers. And we need to hold them accountable. So yeah, I think that there is some responsibility on the consumer to keep holding brands accountable. And um, I have a lot of faith in Gen Z, especially, (laughs) because they're awesome. And they are very um, just not afraid to like comment on a brand's page and say, hey, you did this and that, Mm -hmm. whatever happened. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, they're they're very um, like, let's talk. They're very confrontational. They're very pushy. They're confrontational. But in a good way. Yes. Especially, you know, like boomers, the Gen X who was before millennials. Is that Gen X? Yeah. But I feel like they were just very not confrontational. Yeah. Like, this is what you have available to you. Just pick one. Yeah. Or just like mind your business. It was always like this mind your business mentality. And then I feel like millennials started to like question that and be like, wait a minute, why aren't we holding people accountable? And then Gen Z was just like, we'll do it. We're, we're, (laughs) we'll do it. (laughs) We'll take it from here. Yeah. Like we got you. (laughs) We need to like, look at the way of how corporations have a certain responsibility and also consumers have a certain responsibility. I know that I said earlier, we are all just generally victims as consumers, but also we should know better. And again, that's where I'm like, we should push for policy. We should, you know, definitely apply the pressure in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the reality is, is that the majority of consumer decisions in households are made by women. Mm -hmm. Women are the ones who purchase a lot more in volume than men do. I mean, if we're just talking about, you know, gender binaries, but, you know, we as women are the main victims of psychological warfare in terms of marketing. And so, you know, with women making those consumer decisions, 
at being at the forefront of those consumer decisions, would you agree that shifting the responsibility to consume ethically towards consumers feels a little misogynist in a way? Because I feel like essentially it's blaming women for the problems in the world that weren't caused by them, but they were caused by corporations and like really like lucrative marketing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do think that shifting the blame to women is just so that's a gaslighting move, obviously, especially when these corporations are owned by old white men for the most part. Victoria's Secret. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So yes, I do think that there's a balance, right? I think most of the blame, 90% of it, 95% of it, 99% of it is the corporation. Right. But I do think consumers have power. You know, just as we say that people have the ability to be influential. Yeah, we do. And we need to leverage that. And we need to be mindful that yes, our voice Mm -hmm. does matter. We need to keep remembering that. And to use it because otherwise it just goes back to the whole boomer mentality of why bother speaking out if it's not gonna make a difference. Well, it does. And we all have to believe that and right. and like speak out if we feel like a brand is being um, practicing something that's unethical or exploitative. Right. And I think, yeah, it is very good to have balance of both, like realize, you know, again, what corporations play in terms of roles and then like what we play as consumers. Mm -hmm. But also like, you know, when we talk about like fashion consumption, again, it's just if you look at a woman's wardrobe, it's going to be like two to three times as big as her husband's wardrobe. Right. Mm -hmm. It could be said, basically, safe to say that women consume more in terms of fashion apparel. And it feels a little weird to me when people say like, they just like demonize consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. When it's like, okay, the vast majority of people who consume tend to be women and they consume more than men. And as a woman, I can't help but feel like really frustrated with like the insidious misogyny that is kind of really interwoven in that because when I'm told, ew, like, you know, you should stop consuming, like, why do clothes matter so much to you? And it's just like, you think about the psychological marketing, the cultural, the cultural implications and the expectations in which women are supposed to look polished, put together all the time, always have to wear makeup, their hair always has to look on point, they always have to, you know, wear like a good outfit. There's a social pressure that we have to appear a certain way. So naturally, of course, it's going to push us to want to consume more so that we can meet that expectation. And then we consume more to meet the expectation. And then we're demonized, and then criticized for consuming. I feel like it's just like this vicious cycle of subtle misogyny in the cycle of consumption and capitalism. And I think we all need to kind of really take a step back and like Mm -hmm. realize this is very insidious sexism that is happening because I really think about, you know, the way that when I grew up, I saw girls around me, they started to get their nails done and they would curl their hair and they would wear makeup at like a really young age. Like they'd start shopping at Sephora and Victoria's Secret. And, you know, they were always going to the spa and the salon. And I was like 16. And I was like, first of all, I find that very expensive. And second of all, I felt almost like I had a little bit of an ego because I was like, oh, I'm not one of those girls. You know, like I'm not prissy. Like I don't I don't have to do, to get my nails done. Basically, like not realizing that I had internalized misogyny in there by saying I don't consume anywhere near as much as my female acquaintances around me do and that makes me therefore desirable because I thought it was giving me an edge right a pick me girl yeah I was a pick me girl no I know so it's like that's what's crazy about it is that we don't realize that like we criticize women for being that way but we were groomed to be that way right and even if we were trying to break the mold in the way that I was you still become a pick me girl so it's like still like it's misogyny both ways it's like oh yeah 
I feel like we just need to give women more of a grace to like understand themselves mm-hmm. and like realize what part yeah. of it is brainwashing and one part of it is actually from them. Yeah. And then there's the whole like empowerment argument, which I came across on TikTok too, about how this is about the Kardashians too, which is probably not the best example, but it's about how <laughs> Kim and how she she got so rich that now she was in charge of her own image. Whereas before, when she was younger and she was considered more desirable to the male gaze, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't have as much money to do all this plastic surgery. But once, you know, she got older and she got more money, she was seen as less desirable because she had that financial power to control her image, literally. Wow, I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. So on the flip side, all of this consumption, I know it's not empowerment necessarily, but it's just interesting to think about. Like you're more in charge of your image when you when you have more money. When you have some sort of financial right. yeah, when you have more financial power. I don't know. I thought that was an interesting argument. Yeah, no, that no, that is actually a very interesting. Yeah. Because when you think about fast fashion too, and like what's easily made available to like middle and working class women, it's very sexy. It's mm-hmm. very catering to the meal gaze. Yeah. Like again, using Victoria's Secret as an example, the CEO was an old white man. It was catering to the male gaze to begin with, right? And um, set this impossible standard. Mm-hmm. And using Kim Kardashian's interesting little story as an example, when you have more financial freedom to basically present yourself in a certain way, you just, I don't care. I'm rich. I do what I want. I present myself in whatever way I want. People don't like that. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of hard to find the words to really articulate with that because I'm not saying like I stand rich people. I totally don't. Like she's still rich and I still hate her at the end of the day. Yeah. But what I am saying is that right. it is a really good representation of how once you have more control over your public image as a woman, people will find a reason to criticize, condemn, and cancel you. I feel like then you're free of the male gaze. Right, absolutely. (laughs) You can see that like Kim, she'll be sexy when she wants to be sexy, but then she also will wear like really baggy cargo jeans and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she can basically do whatever she wants. And so now it's just like interesting because people are like, oh, she's not always dressing sexy. Like, oh, she became a weirdo or like, what did Kanye do to her? And then it's just making her out to be this really damaged woman. I mean, she's still rich. We still hate her. But good example of like mm-hmm. the inherent misogyny that happens in terms of fashion, apparel, and consumption. Yeah. I've actually never thought about that. Thank you for bringing all this up. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting because it goes both ways. I feel like consumption is such a major part of being female, unfortunately. Right. It's synonymous with it. We consume to attract the male gaze. Right. Maybe subconsciously. Right. But then we also consume to empower ourselves. Yeah. And subvert that male gaze as well. So consumption is just such a major part of our lifestyle, mm-hmm. our identity and what we look like and who we are as people. And it's unfortunate. Right. Males don't have that. Yeah. I, I think it's like they do on a certain level, but there's like nowhere near as much pressure because yeah. I think their gender expectations and their gender norms are more in terms of like not so much physical, but being like emotionally unavailable and like being, you know, the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and being strong, right? For women, it's literally our expectation is like pop out lots of babies. And in order to do that, you have to be like really desirable and find a husband. So in order to do that, you have to like look perfect, right? Being a cis woman or, you know, just being anyone who identifies as a woman is like, there's a lot of social pressure to just basically look pretty and like keep your mouth shut. When I was consuming a lot more back then, Everything I was buying was, first of all, explicitly sexy. It was like 
make myself look like a thirst trap 24 7 always wear like really bold lipstick always do my hair I was consuming a lot to you know uphold that expectation to be desirable and now that I get older I feel like I've gained a lot more financial stability I feel like more secure in myself so mm-hmm. now I'm like wearing things that are not always showing off my body and my curves and I feel like yeah I don't get looked at anywhere near as much as I did before it's not like I'm sat now like 80 years old and like people think I'm past my expiration date. I'm still literally a young woman and it's a relief that I feel like I'm not being looked at that way. And I think part of that is also because of the way that I'm choosing to present myself because I've just kind of really broken free from, you know, that stupid expectation to present myself a certain way. I wear what makes me feel good. I wear what I like and I consume less as a result. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I'm not trying to race with anyone or compete with any woman in the room like I'm secure and I feel like definitely the way that we consume is a tell of how secure we are in ourselves yeah and I also feel like now with millennials and gen z like there's more of an expectation for women to be more financially independent and to not rely on a breadwinner right I feel like males don't have that expectation anymore like a lot of women make more than men these days like in relationships it's very common yeah for the women to be <laughs> to be the breadwinner. Like I, I feel like things are shifting. Yeah. Um, and women are becoming more financially empowered. Mm-hmm. And I think that just makes sense because we are the consumers. So we, you know, I, I feel like we have a better understanding of what makes us financially empowered. It just makes more sense for that shift to happen at some point. Right. Absolutely. And I feel like low key, there are a lot of men who don't even realize that they're like talking shit about this whole feminist movement in modern day. You're just kind of mad because like people like women are independent. Like they're realizing that their Mm -hmm. only option is not you, that we've got more options. You're salty because women are not fawning and pining over you anymore and they don't need your money. Mm -hmm. They don't need your money. Um, And sexuality and sexual interaction is now a choice. I could choose to have sex with you and I could also choose to not have sex with you. And men yeah. don't like that. <laughs> yeah. That, that financial empowerment is becoming more common yes. now. It's things have changed a lot since, since how they were maybe like a decade ago right. where like men were still like the breadwinners, right. but like, I feel like things are changing over and shifting. It's and a good time for women. It is. Do you think that your consumption has like impacted your financial goals? Do you ever feel like you've had to choose between your financial goals and like purchasing a handbag. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been many times when I've gone into credit card debt uh, because I wanted to buy just like a cute bag. Um, and there were many times when I could have saved money, but instead I spent it. So definitely, I think that consumption has held me back a lot. I feel like the pandemic was my period where I just paused and didn't consume as much and was able to like, see, oh my God, I'm able to save money for the first Mm -hmm. time ever last year. I, you know, was able to save money. And that was because, you know, I had that, that period where I wasn't buying anything. And it was because no one was buying things. You know, we weren't, we were at home. We weren't trying to like one up each other. There wasn't like this pressure to like buy cute clothes, buy that new bag. If anything, it was seen as distasteful for like the first time ever. So yeah, I definitely think consumption has affected my financial goals, but I've been trying to make sure that, you know, now that things are back to normal Mm -hmm. pandemic wise, that, you know, I don't fall into those previous habits that I had before, you know, get back into credit card debt. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's it's so tricky because it's like once the world goes back to normal, do your consumer habits go back to normal too? Or like, what is yeah. normal? Honestly, like, what is a normal way of consumption? Like, it's mm-hmm. none of it is normal. The way that we consume, none of it's normal because we're being marketed to and and you know basically coerced to <laughs> to consume. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the way that you consume is it living below, within, or above your means? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> Oh my God. One that we don't think of. <laughs> yeah. I think that prior to the pandemic, I was definitely living above my means. Mm-hmm. During, I would say I was living the same. Right now, I feel like I'm living within my means. Um, I don't think I'm living below my means. <laughs> um, definitely not. <laughs> but maybe to some extent, I'm still living above my means because technically, with all my student loan debt, I do have a negative net worth. So I guess you could say, you know, I am still living you know, above my means, mm-hmm. um, but I really try to limit the amount of credit cards that I'm using, uh, try to limit my credit card debt. And I feel like maybe that's a really good marker for whether you're living within your means, because if you're racking up all this credit card debt, then that's a sign that you're living, you know, living beyond your means right. versus if you are, you know, living relatively debt free at least credit card wise, maybe you're living within your means. Yeah, it really varies from person to person. It depends, like, you could be living above your means on paper, but then you might feel like personally, you're making all of these really serious financial decisions to try to change your financial, um, you know, situation. And I would say that you're trying, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting to be able to take a look at that perspective and like really kind of audit your spending habits and really see like, are you living above, below or like within your means? I feel like for me right now, I'm definitely living above my means. I feel like most people are. And I think you just try to, you know, make responsible decisions and just be made aware of your consumption and the way that it is impacting your financial goals. Just for me, what has helped me hit my financial goals is just kind of really trying to identify myself as a person outside of the things that I consume. So with that being said, how do you identify yourself outside of how you look and what you wear? Oh, good question. What what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of existential. I mean, I, what I always ask people is like, like, how do you, how do you explain who you are to like a brand new person? How do you explain yourself without your career too? Because I feel like a lot of us identify who we are with our career. So outside of your career and what you look like, what do you, that is me. Tell me who you are. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I am, um, I guess, yeah, I'm so used to like saying, oh, I'm a social media manager on Instagram, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. I'm so used to like introducing myself like that. It's really existential. Uh, Okay. So I guess if we're going to get like really like down to the roots, I would say I am a Palestinian American woman. I am a millennial. Um, I don't know what else. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm yeah. Never married. (laughs) Never married. Who are you for you? Like it's something to definitely think about, huh? Because Mm -hmm. The two main identifiers that we, oh, I guess the three, the three main identifiers that we tend to use is our job, the way we look, and our relationship slash even ownership to other people. Like what you said about like, I'm a daughter, I am single, stuff like that. And I guess it's just like a challenge, closing thoughts, you know, how how do we as people identify ourselves outside Mm -hmm. of that? And it just gives you like that little 
existential crisis that you could start thinking about and challenging the way yeah we can just we can think about that in closing thoughts but we've covered a lot today I Mm -hmm. watch you're like driving home and you're like who am I (laughs) who am I how did I get here yeah I guess everyone who are you who are you outside of that so if you guys um, want to follow Diane on Instagram, her handle is at style context. Yeah. And she also has a podcast again, um, name is channel your influence and it is available on um, Apple podcasts and where else? Spotify everywhere. It's on all the podcasting channels. Yeah. So you can find it anywhere. Yeah. So if you guys want to also follow channel your influence, just also a reminder, we did an episode together on that podcast, which is kind of like a little precursor to this. So if you want to take a listen to that. Yeah. Episode 20. Yes. Episode 20 of channel your influence. And also her Instagram is at channel your influence. Yeah. I think that's all for today. So if you guys liked this episode, you know, stay tuned. We'll have more rolling out and thank Thank you so much, Diane, for being a part of this today. Thank you so much. Had so much fun chatting and take care, guys. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed this one, please leave us a review on iTunes so we can keep producing more episodes for you to listen to. And the conversation doesn't end here. If you had any great takeaways from today that you'd like to share, post it on Instagram and tag me at the baller on a budget so we can chat. Follow me on Insta if you haven't already or subscribe to my newsletter at www.theballeronabudget.com so we can stay connected. We'll be back with another episode soon. But until then, keep ballin', baller fam. Thank you.